This is Tech Talk. Tech Talk is your go-to podcast to listen and discover how entrepreneurs set to build their startup in the tech industry. A collection of open talks about technology and creativity, people, experiences, and life around tech business ecosystems. My name is Stefan Koritar, and my guest today is Bogdan Oros. Bogdan has experience in developing markets from scratch in the software sector and the ability to understand the way customers use and want to use products. He holds a degree in computer science from the Technical University Cluj-Napoca, Romania, and has been selling security software in different countries and creating markets for the past years. Bogdan is a startup founder, passionate in helping great products scale, a husband and a father. This is a conversation full of quality information. Enjoy our talk and make sure you subscribe to the podcast. Bogdan, welcome to Tech Talk Podcast and thank you for accepting my invitation for this short conversation. Thanks for the invite, Stefan. Bogdan, um, I want to get acquainted with our listeners around what have you done in the past in terms of your startup founder history. And um, one of the questions that I would like to kick off for today is, could you explain our listeners what was Onyx Beacon and how it worked? Sure. Um, Onyx Beacon was a startup. Um, we developed technology based on BLE, which is both hardware as well as uh, software that allowed people in the proximity uh, of the devices that we've built to get notifications on their phone. Now, in terms of the use cases where that actually was used, uh, we had so many industries that basically used it that I probably lost count. So we had museums displaying notification when you're in front of a picture. You had retail stores providing information on product or uh, coupons when you're in front of a specific product. We had banks providing you with different kinds of information when you're entering in the branch. We had telcos using it for retention activities. Um, yeah, people doing asset tracking, for example. So in warehouses, um, sometimes people wanted to understand when where specific items are. So they also use our technology for that purposes. Um, yeah, so a lot of industries use the, the technology that we've developed. Unfortunately, it was just mostly probably in the POC stage, so proof of concepts. So the way the way the company started is um, it's, it's actually the whole the way the whole market started on a global stage is when Apple came out and they launched uh, what they called iBeacon standard, which was basically uh, they could allow a notification to be displayed on any iOS device, which um, if you're in a proximity of a specific uh, type of uh, type of device, so. Um, when this actually started, we developed hardware because there, there was basically no hardware in the market at that moment. So Apple just came out and said, we're going to support any type of devices that streams in the following way. Okay. Broadcast in the following way. So they had the description of what they would support. And then people from all over the world came, came to launch devices similar or not similar to the ones that we've launched. There were some players in the market who were a little bit more advanced because they were already working on something like this without knowing that Apple is actually going to support something like this. And they obviously had a, had an advantage, uh, but there were like, there were, I think in the beginning, which was 
2014, 2014, there were about 2014 to 2016, probably around 300 companies in the space wanting to offer different uh, products, either hardware or software or mm-hmm. a mix of them. So that, that's that's kind of how the industry kicked off just because basically Apple had an announcement at one of their WWDC conferences and they said, we're going to support this. And then 300 companies probably launched in less than a year. (laughs) I'm talking globally, of course. Yeah. 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 It's not, it's not, it's not some, it's not that uh, it's not the first thing that Apple does and starts a new market. Right. So yeah. 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 Um, You, you were saying that some, some companies or some competitors of yours, at that time, they were already doing this. How how were they doing? If they yeah, yeah. So the technology is based on Bluetooth, right? So Bluetooth has been in the market since the, what end of the eighties, nineties, right? Uh, so they were doing it based on Bluetooth. They just so they had those specific devices. They just had to uh, change the way those devices were broadcasting in such a way that Apple would um, display notification on your phones when they would get messages. That's why they kind of have an advantage. So you had uh, companies that came out earlier from China, from Poland, from the US, who were already working on similar technology that they basically just adapted to make sure it, it fits with the with the specifications from Apple. Yeah, got it. Okay. So they kind of eased their way, Apple eased their way in terms of Apple kind distribution. of eased their way and, and made it the technology that people talked about. So... In 2014, if you look at the, for example, at the hype cycle from Gartner, you know, like Gartner has this hype cycle every year that they're that they're putting out. Yeah. And so, in 2014, when this was launched, like iBeacon was at the top of the peak. So it was everybody was talking about that. Everybody was talking about how it's going to re- revolutionize um, a lot of industries. People were mainly talking about retail at that stage. Mm-hmm. And the use case that they were speaking with was mainly regarding uh, giving you a notification or a coupon or knowing where you move in a store so that they can allocate, let's say, uh, better the shelf space so that they can help it easier for you to, let's say, if you um, if you come, for example, with a shopping list, they could make it easier for you to buy your products. Uh, you could have cases of use cases where uh, if you're, let's say, um, um, a customer which um, which is a recurring customer for one of the stores and you're coming there very often, they could signal that to you. You could talk about use cases regarding uh, fidelity, uh, recognition, not spending too much time in the queue. So having separate lines for different sets of customers with the help of the device, which basically locates you in the store. Mm-hmm. That's what basically the device would, would do for you. Now, the big trick for that and one of the reasons that the market didn't pick up is the fact that you would need a mobile app. So it, it didn't work directly ah. with iOS. When you would get a notification, you would need the specific mobile app from the, um, from the store, from the bank, from the museum, from the whatever. Did that change today? Uh, it didn't change. No, that didn't change. That's why like the people who are still in, in this space, they're kind of, they looked at specific niches that they could come up with a full turnkey solution. 
because it, like if you look at retail, you would always depend on, let's say, I, I don't know, a company like Walmart, Carrefour having uh, having an application, and then investing enough in the mobile experience so that they they could actually understand that the the online is bridging the offline as well. So at that point, the, like when we started, uh, people didn't see it like this. It was also a question of expectations because people were talking a lot, especially in the retail space. So we, we chatted with, um, we worked actually with, with our go-to-market strategy was kind of focused on, 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 on uh, uh, working for partners. Mm-hmm. So we work with some very, very big companies in different industries. So for example, in the retail space, we work with uh, one of the companies which is a global leader in what they call point of POP advertising. So the companies which are providing all the billboards or the prices on the products in the... So if you go to a Carrefour or to any kind of retail store, you see all those big prices and things like that made out of paper or plastic or things like that. Exactly, yeah. So we, we work there with the with the company who's the biggest in the world. Now they were working with Walmart in the States, uh, Lowe's, anybody big in the space, Starbucks, anybody who actually need any point of purchase uh, um, displaced there, they were the ones who would actually, they would work with. So we spoke with them and most of the feedback that uh, that we got after we spoke with Walmart, together with them after we spoke with companies like Walmart and we, we reached pretty high decision makers. So on the level of the sea level in different countries. Uh, so the feedback we got was, well, um, you need, they didn't necessarily have a mobile app. So either they didn't have a mobile app or their mobile app would just basically provide very simple pricing. They didn't necessarily focus on a customer experience. Mm-hmm. So they just had this expectation that they're going to make money with this technology and they saw it as a marketing tool. But then the numbers simply didn't add up because they, when they started looking at it, they would say, well, you have this iBeacon technology and I'm only able to provide marketing material, marketing information, let's say to 10, 15%, and that's in the good case scenario of customers who are actually coming in. Because most of their strategy wasn't focused on mobile. They didn't have too many customers who actually have the mobile app installed on their phone. So that was a huge hurdle, which wasn't, it wasn't necessarily a technology problem. It was more how the solution looks like for the customer. So mm-hmm. that's why kind of retail, uh, retail stopped pretty much after let's say one or two years, uh, people did a lot of POCs, but then they, they said um, that the technology is not necessarily a good fit for them. There was also some drawbacks with the technology as well, not just ours, but any kind of BLE device because it didn't provide you the amount of localization with, let's say, um, one meter or two meters unless you had a huge infrastructure deployed. Got so it. If the only place let's say you have a very big hypermarket if you only place uh 10 15 devices and you're trying to get the localization of that user uh throughout your store it will probably not give you the amount of the the degree of accuracy to which you would want Mm -hmm. unless you deploy more more devices when you deploy more devices the costs go higher and then it doesn't make too much sense for 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 the retailer to actually move forward that's from a retail from a retail standpoint in other markets um there were other challenges there was probably i would say a technology challenge and uh, 
let's see how the solution looks like challenge. Now we've had our technology in, um, let's say in smart city scenarios where we deploy beacons on buses in order to help visually impaired people. So if you're a visually impaired people, you had an application on your phone, whenever a bus would come, you'd get a notification telling you which bus actually is coming right now. So that they actually know in which bus to get on. Okay, that's a, that's a cool use case. Yeah, this has, again, this has, the challenges we had with this was the go-to market for, um, for this was pretty difficult and the adoption rate was again difficult. What I mean by this is, so we've deployed this in um, Romania, we had it in Bucharest, we had it in um, Helsinki in a pilot, we had it in Hanover in a pilot, we had it in an area in Italy in a pilot, we had it in, in uh, Sydney in Australia, um, in Vancouver in Canada. The challenge with this is transportation company budgets and the way the sales cycle looks there. So it was, it was kind of difficult for us to go direct from Romania to sell everywhere. So we, we relied on partners and usually those partners who would sell would tell us that this kind of technology is not necessarily a fashion company. It's kind of more like a nice to have. That's why we stopped. I mean, if you go to Bucharest, there's the whole fleet has, has, um, has our devices right now. In other places, like in, in uh, also in Bolzano, and I think in other places in, in other places in Italy, in, in Austria, in southern Austria, they still have it in throughout the throughout the um, throughout their their fleet of buses. But if you go to other places, it's just piloting, pretty much, very very early stage, because people didn't see enough of a benefit for them to to keep deploying the technology. Got it. But um, in terms of uh, technology infrastructure, did you came to some kind of a hack, for example, I don't know, Bluetooth, Wi-Fi, smartphones communication? Wasn't it able um, via that thing? Sorry, what did you say when you say a hack? I didn't... A hack? Uh, when I say um, a technology hack, right? So it, there, you said that there were some blockers around uh, the fact that you had to have a mobile uh, app, right, yeah. to to get that notification. Didn't you try to find a hack, no, something there's, like There's no way. There's no way. No way. We had, so we had the great team that we built. So mm -hmm. we work with, uh, we also work with integrating the technology with uh, complementary technology. So you've mentioned one, which is Wi-Fi. Yeah. Our technology right now actually is integrated in some very big, uh, Wi-Fi companies who are deploying this across uh, across the world, um, but for probably the use cases they have are mostly related to uh, asset tracking, not necessarily the retail kind of scenario. Mm -hmm. So there's no, there's not necessarily you, you cannot you cannot work your way around iOS, right? Apple is going to know about it, or around Google. <laughs> the thing that happened is after two years, Google launched their own, let's say, kind of standard. Um, to this, but they have a different approach where they didn't necessarily allow you to have a mobile app, but they kind of restricted you on other areas, most, mostly regarding privacy, and it didn't get enough of a support uh, from the big players, to from the players in the uh, Beacon ecosystem to support it. And also, I think Google also dropped that standard, I think, in the 
probably after a year, a year and a half. I think it's 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 too more. Uh, it's too. It's fragmenting the market. Yeah, exactly, exactly. and limiting. I, th- I think it's a limiting layer. In the market and, and and Google's play was. It kind of wanted to solve a couple of problems that Apple didn't solve from a technology standpoint. So Apple just. So one of the big problems you have with these technologies when you're launching and you're deploying this. Let's say you have a big just in a retail scenario. If it actually picks up, you're deploying hundreds of devices per store. Now the, you need to have infrastructure to be able to manage that and a way and a, and a standard to be able to manage that. Now Apple didn't focus on that. Google wanted to fix a couple of problems that exist that exists in the market, which was yeah the the management of the infrastructure. That's one part, and the other part was the uh, the need for a mobile app. But they introduced other things which were problematic in privacy and also changing the model from uh, for the for the hardware companies. So if you would work with Google, you'd have to change probably your whole approach into how your company is marketing and selling this. And then you would probably get a smaller piece of the pie. Not necessarily didn't have that much contact with the customer. That's why um, didn't get that much of attraction. Got it. Bogdan, <clears throat> you chose to go with hardware. And um, at that particular moment, you were in a software-based ecosystem. How was that for you? Was it hard to start a hardware company? Um, combined with software, of course. But uh... Yeah, yeah. So it was tricky. There were challenges along the way that we didn't foresee at the beginning. I am going to tell you about the challenges, but it was the natural natural decision at the time mm-hmm. because there was no software. So our long-term play, our goal was to, to be able to level the playing field from a hardware standpoint. So we tried to work with companies in the Wi-Fi space to be able to come up with a standard across the board. So then the differentiation is going to, going to be made on the software. So mm-hmm. that was kind of our play. But in order for us to do that, you need <laughs> devices very early on. So we were very lucky because one of the founders of the company had very good relationship in uh, supply chain in, in China. So he, uh, Roman, he worked with um, USB companies in the past. So because of that, we had very fast access to supply chain, which allowed us to have product in the market probably after two or three months since we started which is unheard of in a hardware game right yeah because of the fact that we had that roman had that differentiator and that that connections with the with the chinese manufacturer we were able to manufacture it very very fast so that was a very good differentiation differentiating point for us not differentiating but it was good for us to be able to get some revenue early on and also to be able to understand how the landscape is going to look like in a couple of years. So since the beginning, since we didn't actually have a hardware product, we worked towards that vision of trying to level the playing field from a hardware standpoint where all the hardware players would be the same and then we'd be able to differentiate on our software offering. Got it. So the challenges that came later on from a hardware standpoint had to do with you need to do maintenance of the hardware, then you need to come up with newer models because as a POC, we saw that people were using it in a POC scenarios, 
proof of concepts. But when you talk about scaling it, there were a couple of limitations. For us, for example, very simple was like battery. Battery was a huge problem because our first device was really small, like it has a cell coin battery. It had a cell coin battery. And then um, the problem with that is that it would, the battery would only last for a couple of months. So if you deploy tens of thousands of those devices and you'd have to change the battery every couple of months, that's a huge nightmare. Yeah. So in order for us to stay competitive, we had to develop a new generation, which was a bigger one, had bigger batteries and supported that. Mm-hmm. And then we had to develop another product, which was able to manage all that beacon infrastructure and work actually with uh, Wi-Fi access points. So there were several challenges, several because of that early de- decision, we got pulled into several other decisions down the road. And because also we got, I mean, most of the money at that stage for everybody in the space was coming from hardware. So there was not, nobody was making uh, money on the software early on because there was no hardware for which, to, for, for which you can actually base some software revenues on. Yeah. Right? So we did provide the platform to be able to manage devices, send notifications on your phone, get you analytics on how people are moving it in your space, um, people receiving notifications, are they opening it, are they looking at the notifications. We had APIs to be able to integrate with um, online, uh, let's say, commerce tools, as an example. There were several plays that we did there. Um, it's just, yeah, the technology didn't didn't get the enough um, the enough traction in the market. At least on some on some verticals. <clears throat> so that's one of the key findings we had early on because because we were one of the first players, and we were able to do I would say pretty good the marketing part, and we also did uh, analyst relations. So that cut, that positioned us with Gartner, Forrester, and ABI Research among the forefront of the technology. Mm-hmm. Uh, that positioned us very well there, and because of that, we got interest from very big companies. I mean, we work with IBM, Microsoft, and I'm not talking about the Romanian branches. We're talking about the US, Canada branches. We had an advisor from, who's uh, still a CTO from, from IBM in Canada. Uh, we deploy technology for, uh, for the biggest IBM conferences in the world in Las Vegas. Uh, we work with some of the biggest banks in the Middle East. Um, some banks with, with the two biggest banks in, in, in Dubai, for example, mm-hmm. that brought that deployed our technology in 100, 200 branches. Uh, but it didn't quite catch like the use case and the value that people were seeing. It wasn't quite enough for them in the, in the scenario where we could send the notifications. What we saw as a value, this was after probably two and a half years, uh, we saw more value in asset tracking, where in the manufacturing space, people would come to us and they would say, well, sometimes my production line is not working because I'm missing one specific item and I have no idea where in the warehouses. And you're talking about huge warehouses. So in this space, we work with Lockheed Martin, for example, uh, which is probably US's biggest uh, contractor in the um, in the um, uh, in the military space, mm-hmm. so we had this technology deployed in a couple of warehouses for them, 
Um, and that worked as a good scenario. It just, again, the sales process was not, it was time consuming. It wasn't a, here's the solution you needed. Uh, pay, us, pay us this money. It was pretty much a three to six months, sometimes even nine months sales cycle. And, and you need to have the enough funding to be able to stay in the market. Right. Until the market's going to pick it up and you're actually going to be there. And that right. was, I mean, looking back, that was one of the key mistakes I, as a CEO, made when I raised the first round of funding uh, early on. What was that? Not thinking about the long sales cycles? No, no, no. I kind of, I, I've, I, I knew about the sales cycle. It's just that the amount of money I raised was not enough at the time. So I just mm -hmm. raised uh, 250K. Mm -hmm. I based it on the fact that I'm going to raise again in nine months. Uh, and I based it on some partnerships, which I, I thought they're going to, uh, they're going to come through in three to six months. And they came, they, they matured in around 15 months. So then the whole dynamic and pitch with which you actually go to get funding was a little bit different. Uh, the ecosystem was a little bit different back then. There weren't uh, that many players. So we even spoke with, in Romania, we spoke with banks. So we mm -hmm. spoke with some very big banks who had a little bit of money saved for, for funding initiatives like this. But then for them, it was different because they didn't understand necessarily the market. They looked at it pretty much as a banking investment. So they looked at us and they said, well, you're making uh, this amount of revenue. Uh, you're making just a little bit of profit. There's no way I'm going to give you two months your revenue to be able to scale it. So it's also a question of education of the, um, let's say, VC ecosystem at that stage when we were actually raising money. And the VCs which we spoke with, and we spoke with VCs from, from the US, uh, from Germany, from the UK, from Romania. Um, they, at the moment I was trying to raise money, they didn't think the market's going to pick up. So, because that's, that's why I said like, what were the reasons? What were their justification for that? So for, in terms of traction, people was expecting. So the analysts, there were some numbers in the analysts that they were publishing. And the numbers were very far away from what, uh, from what was happening in the market. So at some point, I spoke with um, an investment bank from, uh, from the US, which was, interestingly enough, they were also working with one of our competitors. And we started talking and he said, look, based on your numbers, you're making more revenue than, your, than the competitor who was theoretically at the time the number one player. Oh, okay. Uh, so we were making a bigger revenue in software, so not hardware, but purely software. We're making more revenue than them. Mm -hmm. And he was like, look, the market doesn't seem to pick off. You just need to be able to stay in the market long enough until the market's going to be able to pick it up. So that was kind of the, um, so the use case, the use case, as I said, in, in the, that got everybody excited, which was a retail one, didn't pick up. It still didn't pick up. It was funny right now I'm in Canada and, uh, the company I've previously worked for here, uh, I've met with, I've had a customer which was uh, one of the biggest shopping malls across Canada and North America. So they were having our technology deployed 
uh, earlier on and they still didn't pick it up and they looked at everybody. They wanted to pick up something, but that specific use case, it just didn't work for them. Got it. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm interested, you mentioned already the relationships with Gartner and Forrester. So, and I saw that also on your LinkedIn, LinkedIn profile, right? And I know that, um, or at least from my knowledge, not many Eastern European companies take this approach. Um, and my question would be, how was that process for a company based in Romania and for you um, in terms of managing that relationship, that analyst relationship? And what did that got you? You already specified a couple of things, which are huge anyway, but how, how was that uh, relationship management? Um, for us, when we started doing it, it, it again, it, it comes back to the role we wanted to play as a, as a company. So we didn't want to make a lifestyle kind of business. So we understood that we need to play with the big boys. That's why when we started early on, all our moves were towards being perceived as an enterprise grade company. We were the first in the world to provide security for our products, enterprise grade security, Mm -hmm. uh, which theoretically should have allowed for seamless deployment. And that obviously got us on the attention of guys like Gartner and Forrester. So uh, what we did was, it wasn't that complicated. We just knew from the beginning that if you want to play with the big boys, we need to appear in Gartner and in Forrester. So we knew that from the beginning. We approached them, we looked at which are the which are the journal which are the uh, analysts which are writing about our specific market mm-hmm. uh, in the case of abi research and gartner i think we reached out i think in the case of forester 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 reached out to us because again they saw we did very good the marketing and the pr uh, activities we had were pretty good and that's why we were always on the forefront of technology so um for example, when, 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 when one of the companies launched the standard, they came to us and they said, we want to launch it with you guys. And you're talking about a, um, a top free global Wi-Fi company. And they knew about us because they've seen us in the media. They've seen us talk about use cases. They've seen us talk about deployments in the use cases. And they've seen us talk about bigger deployments, not just people getting free devices and testing them somewhere at home and seeing how it actually works. So from an analyst perspective, that was the simple approach. That was the approach for us to be able to um, stay on the forefront of technology. And that's what it got us. Now, what we had to invest on this is it wasn't that much of an investment and it also helped us um, understand our business better because Mm -hmm. they came out, they came with, different forms that we needed to fill in and we need to think very well about how we position ourselves in the market. How do we look at the business? How do, how do they see the business? Um, So it it was very, very good for us that we did that uh, exercise very early on. I mean, we were speaking with Forrester, I think within four months since we started the company and with the other guys, probably a little bit later, ABI research, probably one year later and then Gartner Gartner only launched I think uh, the first report about about the market about two years later 
So that was and one reason. Was that something that you reached out and uh, had or paid for their services in terms of? No, no, no. We didn't pay. No. So that's that's the idea. Uh, of course, there's there's you can also pay for it. Obviously, yeah. uh, we didn't have the budget for that. So the reason people write about you when you have no budget is if you're doing something interesting and if they're getting value from the discussions that you're having. Got right. It. So because we were at the forefront of all of the technology and we're seeing all these use cases in all of industries with some very important customers that positioned us very well with them. Mm -hmm. So that was one of the, I would say, I would say in terms of marketing, we did a lot of very good things early on that later we were able to capitalize with a couple of, with a number of leads. So we had, in terms of our go-to-market strategy, for example, because we did a lot of content marketing, we didn't have to pay, uh, we didn't have to pay too much AdWords. Uh, we were always number one in terms of organic traffic. Mm -hmm. So people were directing, uh, yeah, we were always among the first in terms of, um, in terms of uh, Google searches. People mm -hmm. would come a lot, to, a lot to our website and that got us to some very big, very big companies um, who we got as leads. So who, who was managing yeah, Martin in the automotive space? Again, we spoke with a lot of them. We had deployments in some factories in, uh, in Spain, for example, in the States. Um, those were probably about a hundred to hundred devices so nothing necessarily pretty big. So the content marketing part and the analyst relations were among the, things we did very well from a marketing standpoint that got us a big number of leads. Who was, uh, I know, I know this from, at least from being a, a community member and seeing how startups market themselves over here in Eastern Europe. Was there somebody that run your marketing part? Who was that in terms of in charge of go to market and deciding on that part? Because I know that there are not so many startups that do content marketing around here yeah yeah so early on early on uh i did that with one of my colleagues and after about a year a year a little more than a year we actually hired somebody who do that at that point he he was the one who uh, pushed a little bit more the content marketing part he had a little bit more time, so he pushed on that. I, um, I'd managed a little bit more the analyst relations before he came, and he helped on that side as well after that. Okay, okay, cool. Um, how did you reach the, the key decision makers to help you with the POC? Was that also something that this analyst relationships um, got you to that, or was it also something? Uh, again, when there's yeah we we all know the uh the market adoption cycle so early on it was the innovators and when you're an innovator usually we, you had decision makers who would come in because we were at the forefront of technology we had decision makers from companies coming in so we didn't have some guy who wanted to test technology figure out what this is we had marketing people um cmos or chief marketing officer who came to us we had CEOs in case of partnerships um, scenarios that came to us and they said, look, this technology seems interesting for us. This is how we want to roll with roll on the market. Can you help us? 
And then we were kind of just a technology provider there that our goal was to leverage on their channel. That was basically the goal. So in that, in this, in this specific example, so we work here, I, I've mentioned the retail scenario. There's also one important uh, partner we had in the um, FMCG space. So they were the ones who were supplying um, refrigerator technology for all the big brands. We're talking about Coke, Pepsi, Heineken, all the big guys across the world. Mm-hmm. So they came to us and they said, can we make our, our technology? Can we somehow integrate our technology with, uh, with theirs so that it's actually a very good marketing place and it offers them also a way to get out of that market which they are in and get more in a, in a they were selling more to like chief of operations officer and they wanted to get a little bit of a piece of a marketing budget because they mm-hmm. also had some good connections there from Coke, Pepsi and all the other guys on, on a global level. Got it. So those, those, that was also like an example of partnership. And we spoke immediately for, with the CEO of that company, for example, of those companies. So those are companies that are making. So the first one I've mentioned, the point of purchase company, they were making probably a billion a year, a billion dollars a year in terms of revenue. So they were very, very big. Uh, these other guys, they were a little bit smaller, probably in the tens of millions that they were making uh, a year. There were others in the hundreds of millions sometimes, um, but we, we, not with all of them, we got that advanced, right? So with some, we did POC, with some, we stopped and we said, okay, let's learn that lesson. This is not a market for us to want to stop here. We cannot, we also had a limited amount of time and a limited amount of people, obviously internally, right? So we had a great team, a really, really great team. Uh, the, the downside was that we couldn't be able to, we, we didn't know at the beginning which of those efforts would actually work down the road. That's why mm-hmm. we took all these different bets, right? So we look at the, the different markets and we try to, what we tried to do, I think really well was try to understand the market try to understand if our technology is actually a good fit in that market. And if it wasn't good fit, then get out of the market. So that's what we did with retail. That's what we did with, with, with transportation, where we said, okay, this, this seems like it's a very hard sell for us. Let's stop. Um, so that's, yeah, that's pretty much how we, how we approached it. So you kind of stepped into my kind of next question because, um, Based on the, I can easily say success, right? I mean, it's a, it's a small number of companies from here, from Eastern Europe that got to a level of POCs, connections, network, reach out to so many people like you did and work with so many, uh, so many interesting companies. How was the decision, decision for you to stop the operations, to stop the business, right? What was the, what carved that decision? And also like, Things like, did you burn the money or give back to the investors? How was that everything? Yeah, it's a, it's a good question. Well, um, yeah, that's a, that's a very tough decision. <laughs> uh, it's a very tough decision to be made. Um, there's, there's a lot of, let's say, history to what happened internally from a company standpoint, culture. Um, so... From a, from a strictly decision-making standpoint, um, 
at some point, so the company grew to 20, 25 people, I think we had at the maximum. Uh, and at some point we realized that we were very much depending on a license agreement that we signed with one of the, with one very big customer. And that was conditioning us historically on, on being able to provide an additional hardware product that we need to push in the market that we had. The problem was because we were depending too much on that partnership and we weren't, in a, we weren't able to raise enough money, uh, at that point we had to take a decision where uh, we had to say, we cannot go like this, like trying these things out. We need to just focus on one thing. Um, we, choose, we choose one thing to focus on. Now that had some implications from an um, employee standpoint. And the culture within the company was very, very tight. People were very, how, how to call it, uh, very friends, close to each other. So whenever we, when, when we decided uh, to say we need to let some people go, we, we had already looked for, for uh, solutions for them. Uh, that was the point when um, a couple of other people who were senior came to us and said that it's it's difficult for them to move on in in a situation like this. So when we when we looked at that, we said, okay, then the obvious step for us is just to um, liquidate the assets we had. What I mean by liquidate the assets is we had some very good IP developed. Mm -hmm. So that IP we were able to sell. Uh, at some discounted price. And because of that, that money we paid for the investors. So we were able to pay a significant percentage of the initial investment that we, um, that we received to the investors. Got it. And okay. Okay. I understand that. Um, so I could, that's really interesting because I'd never heard of that, about this scenario where the company, the, co the we, we've looked at different scenarios, and I, I mean, in in hindsight, in hindsight, this wasn't the best decision we made. Uh, we've pushed for actually at some point a different scenario. So when we had this approach, uh, I mean, before this, uh, I tried to have an approach where I went to a competitor who was very interested in what we did, uh, but it was the timing was a little bit off. So when they came back to us and they said we'd actually be interested in getting the whole team and your IP. Um, the deal with the other player was already being done. Mm -hmm. So um, we sold the IP because there was a lot of, there was a lot of um, value that they provided in that. So we had one or two colleagues, one or two colleagues, actually two colleagues uh, and probably three towards the end, they were developing some technology which was very, uh, we were using some chipset and the guys from one of the biggest companies in the world and the guys came to us and they said, guys, you're, you're, you're reaching the limit to how you can actually use the chipset. We didn't actually envision it like this. So they were really blown away by that fact. Mm -hmm. uh, and one of the companies that was using that specific chipset that we basically developed technology for uh, and th that we already had the working partnership with they decided to purchase the IP. So okay. we, also, we also have, I think, one, 
one colleague of mine, I don't know if it's still working, he was working uh, for them a, a longer period after, after we, um, we negotiated the, the sale of the IP and then we give the, the investors the money back. Okay, got it. Uh, my thoughts around it was really, really weird because I never saw a company had a 50-50 ratio you know, timing and then got closed because of company culture, right? So no, that no, it, was... didn't got, it didn't got close because of company culture. Uh, it got close because there's also a money problem, right? So there's, yeah, it's, it's money problem. It's also difference in visions. So there's, whenever a company did close, it's never just one motive. It's always a, 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 a cumulus of factors that are starting in there. So for us, it was first, it was money, uh, it was money, it was co-founders not necessarily understanding each other in terms of what the future is going to look like. One founder wanting profitability very fast, the other founder wanting to raise money. Um, culture-wise, there was, yeah, there were, there were some, some difficulties from, from the culture standpoint as well. Uh, there was also like me burning out. Um, so that was a problem earlier on. A little bit earlier on, probably like three, four months prior to this incident, I'm, I'm talking to you about when we actually took the decision. Yeah. So there's a cumulus of factors that are happening there. Um, at at that point, so the point where we we had to take the decision, yeah, it was pretty tough decision, but it was it was yeah, so many so many factors that that kind of led us towards that. How did you, you said burnout, how did you felt? How did you knew you were burned well, out? You, it was, it's something that, I mean, for me, burnout, it was something that crept on me on a daily basis. The first time when I, when I noticed it was, I was having a, a I was supposed to have a presentation at the, one of the biggest geolocation conferences, actually the biggest one in Europe, in Brussels. And when I had to get, when I had to um, to go to the airport in the morning, I just couldn't get out of bed. Okay. And you didn't? So I just, I was, I was exhausted, drained physically and emotionally. There's, there's a lot of history to this because there's history to some decisions I've made. Mm -hmm. So because we didn't have enough, again, because I didn't raise enough money, we couldn't afford some resources that were pretty important at, at an early stage. Like, for example, I had to personally, I had to start learning about finance, uh, doing kind of CFO kind of activities, cash flow, all these kind of things. And for me, it was a very big pressure of being able to deliver being able to pay salaries, being able to bring in customers. From a sales standpoint, it was also difficult for, because Cluj is a technology city, right? Yeah. So we didn't, we didn't necessarily have a sales profile VP that I could actually hire, who could actually run the sales team, yeah. right? So I had to do this until I had a colleague uh, who actually picked up managing the sales team. So. For me personally, one of the biggest things I've learned is uh, in terms of when you scale, you need to make sure that you have the proper roles split in the team early on. So we had a CTO 
and it was pretty much me and him running the company early on. Mm-hmm. Now, that's that's a problem when when you're scaling with this many activities, and and there's so many more that obviously I have we didn't chat around this, but there's so many more things happening like hiring. Uh, you need to scale. Yeah, we're very enough until we actually had this. Uh, this um, the incident with 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 me burning out. We didn't have that many colleagues actually leaving the company. We just we had colleagues who actually left the country for other opportunities. So keeping that culture was also like difficult always. So that kind of put a strain on me. Mm-hmm. That slowly crept in. I didn't feel it at the beginning, but then slowly it started to be worse and worse. Uh, and it got to a point where I didn't enjoy my job anymore. And I was the one who was supposed to take the decisions on how the company moves, moves further and moves forward. Yeah. So it wasn't good for me. It wasn't healthy for me. It wasn't good for the company as well. I mean, if I look back right now, some of the decisions I've took in my last two, three months, I'm laughing myself. <laughs> like they're really, really bad. But at the same time, I'm also giving myself the benefit of the doubt with the fact that I would just couldn't cope with the stuff anymore. So that was, uh, that was pretty telling on me uh, emotionally and physically as well. Got it. Well, I, 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 can, I can feel the, the, the hardship from your voice. So Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that was, that was pretty, pretty difficult. Uh, I have tried different things. I've tried to just take three or four days. Um, it, it didn't go away like this. Just take three or four days while we're out. Um, and that's when I came up to look. I need to just like take two, three months or whatever. Mm-hmm. I always started basing myself. I, 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 I think the last time I was going with an airplane, I usually am not attentive. I don't pay attention to uh, when the flight attendants say they're one minute, one minute and a half uh, yeah. talk of security. But there was one point in one of probably the last business flights I took where when the flight attendant said, put your, before, put, before helping others, you need to put your own mask. That's when I realized that, that, hey, wait a minute, I need to put on my mask first. Wow. And then I, I, I knew it, it is going to be like really, really difficult for the people. Uh, I know they had probably a very hard time. Um, and yeah, if probably most of, uh, probably uh, a part of them were disappointed. It's just at that point, that was, that was the only thing I could have done. First of all, for myself. Yeah. Yeah, there were a lot of a lot of personal things I was struggling at the time. Yeah, so, but but there were a lot of learnings as well. Definitely, I mean that's a learning curve, and you know, burning through that. Yeah. Definitely. Well, how would you how would you do today around the co-founders part? How would you do that? Would you still go into? So the 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 lessons, yeah. So one of the lessons I've learned is have very clear expectations with your co-founders mm-hmm. early on. So that was one of the mistakes, very big mistakes that I did early on starting the, starting the company. Um, we didn't have, we, we did have a very good history and we did work together, but sometimes the goals didn't align. Mm-hmm. And when the goals don't align and when one thing wants one, when one part wants one thing, the other one wants something else, then 
sometimes it's difficult if they're totally opposite. So if somebody says profitability, somebody says raise money, you're obviously looking at two different scenarios, right? Exactly. One scenario you look at, how can I make more money right now with what I have? How can I uh, uh, minimize my costs? The other looks like looks at, hey, the market is not there yet. It's still, in some use cases, we're still better off put. We need to raise money. So those cases are, um, yeah, are pretty difficult to to, um, to to put together. Would you still uh, would you still add a co-founder if you would uh, fund if you start a fund a, a new? It's not, it's not so, of course, I, I'm, I'm still, I'm co-founding right now another, another venture. It's not a question of, it's not even a question of the right co-founder because I think we were the right co-founder in the space. The only question was around setting the expectations clearly early on with what we do and how far we actually go. That was mm-hmm. the only problem. The co-founder I did, I started with was he did an amazing job uh helping us early on he did really good things after that as well it's just a question of wanting different things uh and yeah that's that's pretty much that's the conversation that that in hindsight we should have had early on it wasn't a co-founder fit it was uh uh what each of it what each of us wants out of the out of the the out of the business okay Okay, for me, that's... for me, it was always about like Cluj was always an outsourcing city, mm-hmm. right? Services mainly. So for me, it was always always about just making product that products that we could actually um, ship scale. globally, yeah, globally in scale, right? So that's what I wanted to first and foremost build. We just didn't kind of align ourselves in as to how we're actually going to achieve that because he. He has a very successful business. He has, um, I mean, one of the company, one of the companies has is very, very successful in the security space. So it's just a question of having the right expectations early on. And then uh, each of us knowing which our parts are and how we, uh, how, and how each of us manages all their parts. And then looking at, the, looking at those decisions and then trusting each other a hundred percent, which is probably something that we necessarily didn't have. Maybe probably because you're also mentioning the the Romanian kind of. We were talking about it before the podcast. The Romanian yeah. kind of way where we're we're not necessarily trusting a hundred percent. By default, yeah. By default, yeah. Yeah. So if things don't work out, they don't work out. It's not a problem, right? It's, exactly. It's business, and I and I see it here. I mean, I'm, I'm in Canada since. A year and a half, I've seen companies fail and people are, um, there's still that default of, of, of approaching it in a very sane and mature way, which we didn't necessarily have looking backward where he said, guys, look, this is just not working out it mm-hmm. is what it is. Yeah, got it. I mean, that's something that we also find when we are traveling to the US for different business trips is that um americans or like the, the culture over there doesn't matter uh if you're american or not is that they have trust by default yeah. if you break it then it's kind of obviously that we're, we're not going to do anything more together right um yeah and even and even with the states and i, I i've seen this a lot 
Um, so for me, when I start the product, I always had the vision that the product needs to be good, perfect, so that people don't complain. Like I've seen right now, I've seen here companies who have products which are low quality and they get really good sales. And it's, it's not about that. It's about being able with the product you have to fix the biggest, the smallest amount of, uh, to, 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 how to put it, to provide for the companies just a functional prototype that you know works for them. And mm-hmm. after that, even if you have bugs and if you have problems, it's usually, you're going you're gonna to straighten it out. But yeah. at the beginning, yeah, here in the culture, I agree that that's, 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 kind of the, that's kind of the reality. The reality is you go to a company, and I've seen this in my last role. I've seen this where I approach, again, very big companies, and then everybody's going to talk to you. Everybody's going to sit with you if you have a good value proposition to make. And then it might work out. It might not work out, but there's a trust element at the beginning, which is, in, which is involved that, that uh, it's kind of de facto. Yeah. One interesting thing uh, when you said around bugs and shipping not perfect products is that uh, what I came to see and uh, as a conclusion is that what I see in, in the Romanian ecosystem and Cluj over here that the product mindset is very waterfall based and that uh, turns into that perfection that every startup yeah. founder wants from here. So that comes from waterfall, doesn't come from agile methodologies, right? Because agile yeah, yeah. are ship really fast weekly right uh, or even daily so that doesn't and that gives you agility and shipping not in the best way right so yeah i, How, I think it's also, it's also different when you're having because most of the it's also different when you're having the business and the product and engineering function in one place mm-hmm. because of the fact that business will always push engineering and product and it, it's it's I mean, for Cluj, one of the problems I think that that the ecosystem is not moving faster is because there's, in my view, there's not enough of business people who could actually push this. There's not enough people coming in from, let's say, other industries and coming up with solutions for their industries or for others who could actually push faster prototypes, faster POCs. I mean, to give you an idea, we were speaking with two of the top free Wi-Fi companies in the world and we didn't have a, a, a hardware device. That's, that's very North American style. <laughs> yes. Yeah. So, so that's, that's very aggressive. We didn't necessarily have a hardware device. We just had some, some PCBs that we could basically ship if people had anything. So mm-hmm. at the beginning we actually sold PCBs. I remember the first we had the, in our office, we had the, the first order, the customer who who, who paid on uh, on PayPal, uh, he actually shipped. He actually got from us three PCBs, like small ones, very very small ones, like like I don't know, like two centimeters for two centimeters, with the technology. So we didn't have a casing for it early mm-hmm. on. Yeah. So that's how we did it. We were like, okay, let's launch the website. Let's speak with the people first. Let's see if there's a market. I actually set myself a goal personally, like if this is not gonna pick up in four or five months, there's no way I'm going to do this because mm-hmm. I, I had come from another company where another startup where the problem was that I didn't do the customer development part early on. Mm-hmm. So because I had that experience, I said to myself, well, the first thing I'm going to do it here, I'm not going to start building, I don't know what kind of technology, but I'm going to start understanding, is there a request for this? 
are people actually going to buy this? So we, when we saw in the first months, I think first two months, we had like two, 3,000 euro devices with actually, with, without us actually having the devices to be shipped. Then we're like, oh yeah, this might actually be a market. Mm-hmm. Without actually knowing. Anyway, there's also, a con- there's also, because early on we shipped to developers. So that developer market was pretty much uh, done with after a year, year and a half, because there was basically just the early players. Right. And there's a lot of startups saying, I want to build this. I want to base it on our technology. And then they would get our stuff and then mm-hmm. just try, try different things with it. Yeah. Right. So um, that's, that's kind of, that's kind of what I think Cluj is missing. It's also, I mean, when I'm looking at the ecosystem, yeah, there's. What, what, give me, give me, give me three differences in terms of the Canadian startup ecosystem and the Eastern European and Romanian, let's say. Oh, there's probably we give you more than three. So the first one is that I'm thinking of is uh, access to funding. Mm-hmm. So here, when I say funding, here it's it's if you have a good idea and you have a little bit of background to prove it, it's fairly easy to get funded with pre-seed, probably even seed, depending on your experience, uh, seed rounds pretty early on. Mm-hmm. Now the government supports the startup ecosystem as well. Mm-hmm. So there's to give you an idea for there are programs in Canada that if you're making new tech for every dollar that you're putting in deploying making that tech uh the government will give you sometimes up to 75 cents. So let's say you have a developer, you pay them $4,000 just as an example yeah the government's gonna be able to support three thousand of that so i'm not i'm not even i'm not even talking about vc money and so because vc money wow. is that's another conversation that's amazing uh it's it's it is amazing for this part yeah it's actually if you look at places like israel for one dollar you're putting in the company in terms of making new tech they actually give you a dollar and ten cents now that's a surprise Okay. There are there are some yeah there are some there are some uh some programs that 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 allow you to do this. Mm-hmm. So that's that's one but that's in terms of funding. Of course, if you're talking about VCs, it's it's another it's another scale. So the city I mean I'm in right now, which is called uh it's called Waterloo, is very close to Toronto. Now this is a city the size of Cluj and it has around a thousand startups. A thousand. We have a thousand in Italy. Startups out of out of these thousand startups, of course, some of them are just early ideas. Some of them are bigger. But out of those, there's three or four who are already uh, billion dollar companies. You have hundreds, uh, hundred million dollar companies. I don't know, like. I don't know the ecosystem that well, but I, I know at least five to 10 companies who have that kind of valuation right now. Okay. So funding, obviously you're talking about another scale, right? Th- then there's another thing here. There's a lot of money being poured into research. Mm-hmm. So the city, I mean, I don't know if you're like right now, one of the big waves which is coming is quantum computing. Mm-hmm. Now in the city I, I, we have here, uh, probably 60% of the specialists in quantum computing are located. 
because there's a big investment happening on the university level that keeps people producing products and solutions in quantum computing and keeps people in the ecosystem. So they have a lot of funding. They develop around some core things. So they look at, right now, if you look at Canada, they look at quantum computing, they look at AI, they look at IoT mm -hmm. from a technology standpoint. They don't have services, businesses. Of course, they have a couple to be able to support, but that's not their core. Mm -hmm. um, so that's another difference. Another difference would be, there's a difference in maturity that we have. Like with all this comes a difference in how you're approaching how you approach you go to market strategies, uh, how you're approaching. Um, for me, what I've learned in the past is I wasn't very good at, let's say, uh, a data-driven approach. I didn't necessarily have that. I kind of based the decisions on data in my head and some hunches. Mm -hmm. I came here, people are measuring everything like every everything and they've measuring sometimes the decisions are not that well i would say because they just look at numbers in some cases so in mm -hmm. some cases i think it's it's counterintuitive to just look at numbers but you do need numbers to provide a, a base on which you're actually taking decisions from for I agree. the maturity level i would say that's different and you have here like you have companies like BlackBerry who's here. Can you imagine like how many thousands of people work there and, and manage to scale a company like that? Like there's a lot of knowledge. There's a lot of, from all, from all aspects, knowledge how to make supply chain with uh, for hundreds of millions of devices to, we didn't have that. We don't have necessarily have this kind of knowledge included, no, right? No, yeah, no. To, to how you're actually going to be able to sell hundreds of millions of devices from yeah. channels. So it, it's all these relationships that people were able to build in time that right now, like a, a big part of the ecosystem is actually ex Blackberry people who started their own companies. Blackberry mafia. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> there's, there's a lot of people who started. That's going to be a hashtag for the podcast. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Yeah, definitely. That's something also happening, right? In, uh, in in the Silicon Valley part, that's something that is a yeah. it is a pattern. It, it, right? it's, it's a mature ecosystem. That's how it could. Uh, it's a mature ecosystem. It also has its challenges because here you also have people who are going to the valley. So here, there's also a struggle for being able to keep talent, just like Cluj has. So here, people are some people are working in in companies who have uh, also offices in the valley. They want to move to the valley or they want to apply for jobs in the valley. So it also comes with the challenges as well. It's not uh, it's it's not yeah. It's right. I, Every I, ecosystem has its challenges. They want to get bigger. They want to get on a not necessarily the size of Silicon Valley, but they want to get bigger as well in terms of ecosystem. Yeah, and they, they have a lot of. They have a lot of support groups, which I think is really makes a lot of sense. So you have accelerators um, who are providing support groups for CEOs to meet and speak about their challenges, mm -hmm. which is something that includes you don't necessarily have because there's not that many CEOs in the startups world. Um, 
could actually be able to meet and talk about their business, right? Yeah, I agree. Mostly, mostly services is what we have in Cluj. And, and uh, another thing, and you, you said that, you know, every ecosystem has its challenge. And I was talking to a uh, high-level uh, executive um, in, in the management um, board of uh, this uh, service-based company from, from Cluj with offices across Romania. And uh, she was saying that it's such a stupid thing that this service-based software development companies over here, they fight one with another for human resources, right? Instead of focusing some, some, some of that energy into putting, into building products out of here, right? So they keep going with this fight uh, around taking others, people and so on, right? So that's also that, you know, you said right now, Canada is having, but... I, I agree with this. I think it makes perfect sense, but this is just a very high level approach. The, mm. the reason why I think this doesn't happen is not a shortage of talent. It's a shortage of business acumen, business understanding and risk-taking. Yeah. Uh, you need to, when you're launching a product, product needs to be for a specific market. Usually what I've seen in the past, I don't know if that's still the case, but I have seen people in the past working in service-based companies who said, let's say the service-based company comes and says, I want to launch this product. Now, after six months, they look at it and they say, well, it's not making money. Let's put you guys on outsourcing because exactly. they, look at people, they look at people like, like, oh, you're right now you're a center of cost instead of being a center of providing revenue for the company, which makes sense from a service business. It's a very simple understanding of that decision. But at the same time, with this approach, you're never building products. Yeah. I remember I had one, one conversation with the product manager a long time ago. So they, they launched a, a, a very good product out of Cluj that got featured by Google. And they had a lot of promise, like a lot of promise in the space. But at some point, that was basically the call. After six months, they're like, yeah, I'm going to put these people to outsourcing uh, for outsourcing services. We're not going to develop this product anymore. Yeah. So it's, it's the management if the management says, actually makes a decision and says, hey, you actually need to build the product, I want you to build the product, then it needs to back that decision and allow the people in the company, let's say flexibility with saying, from the beginning, maybe we can actually do that. Here's the amount of money, here's what you can play with. I would actually do it, to be very simple, I would actually do it, to be very honest, I would actually do it outside. Yeah. You need to incorporate it because if you don't incorporate it outside, even if the company retains some majority of it, right? Uh, you need to incorporate it outside because then that, that's another culture that's actually being formed. Uh, you shouldn't work in the same office, theoretically. Yeah, that's, that's kind of my view on it. I, I've seen, I've seen uh, early on, because early on we also work with our offices in, in another company, and I've seen the kind of challenges that actually has mm -hmm. so that has actually some challenges with it where let's say exactly those kind of decisions that the management needs to take where if the management at some point uh wants to say for this specific company i want to provide let's say stock options then the other people are going to say in the company in your company are going to say hey what's happening here why aren't we why aren't we getting stocks yeah right <laughs> yeah. it's it's all these things that that's how you're actually building products but yeah. i think in Cluj, Cluj is not yet 
I don't think Cruise is yet at that point. Of course, there are a couple of successful products there. Uh, there's, yeah, there's, 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 but it's difficult because the service market still performs very well. So that's why I think the incentive, the real incentive, some people would also do it for marketing purposes. So you, you I, I saw CEOs. We, we had that, we had that, yeah. I, I saw some CEOs who say like, yeah, we're going to do products, we're going to do this, management teams, we're going to do this. And then it was pretty much just for, for marketing purposes so they could actually... Employer branding, yeah. Yeah, employer branding, yeah. Yeah, yeah, so for and for their branding, saying, "Hey, we're we're actually doing products here, and we're not." Uh, yeah, it's it's yeah, it it's a it's it's a normal stage. I would say it's a normal stage in the development. I, I've read I've read I don't remember the book. I've read at some point a book about the uh, the book. I don't remember the book's name. It was about how the ecosystem in Israel actually was formed. So. Okay. That actually started similar way, similar as Cluj. So at the beginning, they were outsourcing. Yeah. So at some point in the, I think, 80s, Oracle, Microsoft, Intel, so all the guys who were big there, Apple, they started sending research work to Israel. Mm-hmm. Those guys already were at the forefront of technology with a bunch of other things. That's why we, they started making companies themselves. The government started to support it, and that's, that's how they kind of kicked in. Now, with us, the problem is that usually from, I don't know, I've, I've lost touch in the past probably one and a half, two years. But when I was there, the most, uh, mostly the, the services part that people got were not necessarily core in terms of uh, finding business problems. So for example, it was funny, I met at some point with an executive and she mentioned to me that they work they work with uh, with one of the very big travel tourism sites, and at some point they actually built a product for them from the beginning that landed them I think about twenty five million in revenue or mm-hmm. something around that, mm-hmm. and they got paid a very small amount of money for that. And I'm like, oh, oh my god, what's happening here? Like all this value that we are actually losing. Yeah. Right. Because of the fact that we are not taking enough of a risk in order to actually be there. So you're getting probably a couple hundred thousands of dollars for something. Now the person for which you're making that product gets 20, 30 million. Yeah. That's a lot of value from that. You're, you're, you're leaving on the table. Yeah. My, my take on it is that, um, all these CEOs and management uh, management boards is that they didn't taste it yet. The true yes. feeling of product and revenue of a product, right? We may have, and <clears throat> we have a crack with UiPath. Um, I hope that's going to uh, start something. So, but I'm, I'm really curious about what is going to, going to be uh, shaped in, in the future. Um, Bogdan, I have my last two questions, um, and one is: Where do you where do you see life and economy after COVID, after this after this situation that we have right now today? I have no idea. No, I think I think you can 
you can have certain a lot of assumptions on it saying what you think will happen i think obviously there are sectors right now which are really really struggling uh that's that's an understatement people have yeah people are losing their jobs in a lot of sectors so that's that's difficult i think things will not going to go back to the way they were uh, i was speaking with somebody here in an um, in an airline and they were telling me that they're making their their best assumption for when business is going to be back to 2019 is going to be 2024 their best assumption so uh, that's a not a very positive assumption. Yeah, that's not a very positive one, right? So, but yeah. they probably have access to information that they don't necessarily have access to, right? So, exactly. I don't know. I think the, the first priority is, I think th things are going to start uh, be a little bit more relaxed probably in the next couple of months. Then probably there's going to be a second wave. People are going to go into houses again. And in one year, one year and a half, we're going to have, we're going to probably have a vaccine according to what uh, people are saying. And then I think, not necessarily capitalism, but I think consumption is going to be reinvented. I think mm. people right now are, are understanding that they're buying a lot of things that they wouldn't necessarily need. Yeah. Uh, and people are going to start valuing other things after, um, after this will all be done with. And maybe, then maybe. we're going to have to adjust that reality experiences instead yeah, of experiences things. are going to be different like just think about like event spaces events are not going to be the same in the next three four years for sure yeah right this is everybody's trying to think how they can do virtual events how they can do things like that but it's not the same right you're going to pay for something it's not going to be the same experience so everything around people interaction in the next year is going to be yeah suffering any kind of business which which needs that yeah any kind of online e-commerce thing which is looking at is selling um necessity products you will need it but i think right now people are going to start looking very careful at and making a very very good line between nice to haves and must-haves and must-haves yeah and if you're a must-have i think your your business is going to boom in the next period if you're a nice to have, it's going to slowly, slowly decline. Yeah, I agree. It depends on the sector you are. I agree. That's, uh, I've been reading like the Facebook comments, like people are asking, hey, what are you giving up on these days, right? And a lot of people are, people are commenting that, oh, there are so many things and a, a big list of things that I don't need anymore. Like I can see them clearly now in, in, the, in front of my eyes that I'm going to, I'm giving up on them, right? Yeah. Um, Bogdan, my, my last question would be to just, just to, to tell our audience, what are you doing today? What is your professional focus? You said something that you're co-founding a new venture. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I'm actually starting something with, uh, some really smart guys from Cluj. Uh, it's in the fitness space. Mm -hmm. Um, we're, we're in the customer development stage right now. As you're, as you're really aware right now, um, yeah, people need, people are staying in houses, but they still need to stay healthy and fit. So we're trying to come up with a solution for them to actually achieve that. Um, and that's, that's going to improve the experience they have based on what's happening right now. 
Got it. So we're okay. working on something like that. I'm gonna keep you posted when please do um, we have more. Yeah. Let's have another conversation about it separate. Yeah, definitely. Awesome, Bogdan. Uh, it was a pleasure, uh, as uh, as always, to host you and have an amazing conversation. Uh, so I'm looking forward to the to the next one. Sure, sure. Thanks, thanks for the time as well. Thank you, Bogdan. Have a great day and stay safe. You too. Bye bye. Bye. Thank you for listening. Remember to subscribe, share and review our podcast because the voice of our community keeps us going forward. Find more episodes and discover different perspectives about tech and business and in our daily life.